What's up, everybody? Look where we are again. Another first in Center of Attention history. Um, I know I put out the video explaining kind of where I wanted to go with this show for the next however many months or years that I end up doing it. And uh, I did want to split into kind of... It's the same show. It's still Center of Attention. It's still mainly me. Um, the guests will probably normally be on the uh, episodes that release Thursday, but every Monday I wanted to give you guys kind of like a, a sports-type show since I did start my broadcasting um, in the sports broadcasting realm. I'm not necessarily just some entertaining guy that people come in and listen to whatever he wants to talk about. Normally I started off with a lot of the sports talk shows. I We did Gunnison Sports Talk Radio for three years. Uh, with me and Christian and a whole bunch of different people that have gone through and been co-hosts on that show, Rev, Brady, Subart, who was last year's, um, and then we also added Dom Fletcher and Jordan Carls onto this year. So I've started, I started in that field. I started doing sports talk radio. Still, really, in, I love sports talk radio, and it's what I in the the whole scheme of things that's what I want to do is have a sports talk show either on the radio or one that's on TV as well um, whether it's a first take or uh, like a Golic and Wingo where they just or uh, Mike and Mike in the morning where they just play um, the video of you guys talking about sports so that's what I do still want to overall accomplish and that's the career that I want to go into but I do enjoy doing the podcast. I do think that I can have very interesting conversations. My interests don't just lie on sports, which is is why I'm doing the Thursday show. And um, I do know that there's a big portion of listeners. Uh, it's mainly my f- family. I'm not going to lie. Do enjoy. They'd rather just listen to me talk about sports and um, they'd rather hear my opinions on that. So that's the gist of why I'm doing two center of attention episodes per week. Um, the Thursday show is going to stick with the format that has been in the last couple episodes. Um, the sports show is just kind of going to be a little bit more straight laced, a little more buttoned up. I'm not going to be as loose. Um, I have more of an idea of what I'm just going to talk about instead of kind of just going and, and having different conversations or just talking about whatever. And with that, we get to start off with the unfortunate news um, that happened fairly recently, actually. It was, um, I'm pulling it up, so. So everybody, if you're a fan of mixed martial arts over the past 10-ish years, I want to say, I don't know exactly when his debut was, uh, 2008. So, the last 12 years, if you've been a fan of mixed martial arts, you know of John Jones and you know that he is well I'm going to say was considered by many to be the greatest fighter of all time the the absolute best hands down mixed martial artist ever to compete in the UFC or any other professional fighting organization and um, he's ran run into a lot of different things that have kind of uh, I'm going to say because it, it shouldn't, I guess, in a lot of sports, you kind of, and the best example that I can think of right now is football with O.J. Simpson. I don't know if anybody has seen the um, top 100 list for running backs, but O.J. Simpson happens to be on the uh, 
OJ Simpson is on the top 100 greatest running backs list when they released their 100 best by pres- by position uh, when the NFL released that list. So normally you should separate the athlete from the individual. I don't believe in that. I believe that the athlete is the entire individual, and mainly that's probably just because I've been an athlete before, and I don't want people just to see me as an athlete or just to see me as the person I am off the field. I'd rather somebody see me as the whole person because I think that's what, when I was competing, that's what I tried to do. And um, so this is where this kind of becomes more of a controversy with the John Jones incident. Uh, His first one, uh, he he hasn't been without his controversies ever since he started fighting. Um, He's the youngest champion in UFC history, I believe. Um, he won the light heavyweight championship for the first time, I think, when he was 21 or somewhere around there. And then there was a lot of controversy surrounding, in a lot of his fights, his opponents would complain that he was poking him in the eye. Because when he'd carry his hands, he'd have his lead hand, which is basically like his first line of defense, he'd have it open. Um, if you've watched MMA, you know that they have the fingerless gloves, they just have the padding on the knuckles in hands so he would have his hands open so when people would try and get in his range which is already he has an 84 and a half inch reach which is insane to think about especially if you're not of a professional athlete stature an 84 inch wingspan or an 84 inch reach which basically means that that's his wingspan is double that um it's like fighting a pterodactyl but he would put his hand out and when people wouldn't try and get inside of his very long reach they would get their eyes poked so that's where controversy started to find him he had that really heated rivalry with um daniel cormier which if you've been following mma for a while i don't think that we've seen a rivalry as intense as that one since probably chuck tito back in the earlier years of the UFC, but these two did not like each other. Daniel Cormier and John Jones hated each other. Um, Jones dominated him in the fights. He, he won every single fight. Um, but then after following this, uh, I believe it was in off, so somewhat in the off season, but he did have a fight coming up against Anthony Johnson. Uh, he got into a hit and run on April 27, 2015, Albuquerque police stated that Jones was sought in connection with a hit-and-run early the previous morning. Jones was alleged to have run a red light and crashed his rental car in a collision with two other vehicles. Jones allegedly fled the scene of the crash on foot, leaving an injured pregnant woman behind in another vehicle. The incident was witnessed by an off-duty police officer who identified the suspect as an African-American man running or wearing a white shirt and dark pants, which was believed to be Jones. According to witnesses, the man described as Jones then returned to the scene to grab cash from the vehicle before fleeing again. Paperwork found in the rental car was found in the rental car was under the name of Jonathan Jones inside the silver Buick SUV. Law enforcement found a pipe with marijuana inside of it, um, though initially waited wanted for questioning that could have resulted in a simple misdemeanor. Jones' charges were elevated to a felony on April 27th for injuring a person and purposely leaving the scene of an accident. So this was his first kind of incident that fell outside of the octagon. He had a hit and run. Uh, The main problem that happened in this situation was the fact that he did run away from the scene at first. He didn't. um, And then when he came back to get money and what was found in the rest of his car, that's kind of where this situation went from a, Oh, this is just a simple accident. Maybe he was 
um, a little, and it's not, I'm not saying that this is a good thing, but maybe he was just a little bit buzzed, lost focus for a second while he was driving, ran a red light, and then in the panic of everything that happened, he just ran, and he has the added-in ability to use CTE as a defense because we know so little about CTE is that a lot of the times when you do get in a car accident, what people are teaching you, what defense attorneys would teach you is to run away from the scene of the crime because they can't try you based on your behavior immediately following the incident. So if if you did just get in the crash run, they find you a couple days later and they ask you why you ran and just say, well, I, I was caught up in the moment. I hit my head in the middle of the crash. I wasn't thinking correctly and I, I just ran. That's mainly what a lot of defense attorneys would teach. The problem was when they found the pipe with marijuana in it and the fact that he did come back to his car to get more money, um, that kind of, that's what rocketed this into a, a huge deal and that's why he originally was fined and suspended i think he was suspended for a few years um trying to see if i can figure out i, I think he was fined for a year they stripped him of his title uh dc and anthony josh johnson ended up fighting for the vacant light heavyweight title that Jones left, DC won, um, Jones wait, sits out his suspension, comes back, fights Daniel Cormier, I believe it was at UFC 200, and knocks him out with a head kick. Everybody's thinking, wow, John Jones is back. He took the time off to figure his, his life out and figure out what all he was trying to deal with in his personal life, his drinking problems. It was very well known at this point. Um, I think a, a couple, either a year or um, just a handful of months before this incident happened, he had the one of the greatest fights of all time, and I think it's probably the greatest fight that I've ever watched in person was, or not in person, but I watched live at the time, was John Jones versus Alex, Alexander Gustafson. Five-round split decision that um, Jones and he had. That was... The, this original incident was just a little bit after that. So everybody knew that he had some partying issues, probably a lack of discipline. Um, I think that that lack of discipline is actually current through his whole life because he was a very good wrestler in high school and didn't end up going to a college to wrestle. He ended up going to a junior college because I think that he had a lot of discipline problems and other things that were going on in his life that – um, prohibited him from going and, and being a Division One wrestler. That was just the first incident. It comes back, beats DC, head kick. UFC is now under USADA testing at this point. So they are very strict. Like They are testing um, to the point where if you drink three cups of coffee before you take the test that, the US, that USADA does, USADA is the United States Anti-Doping Agency, um, if you drink three cups of coffee before you go take this test, you'll pop hot for um, having too much of a stimulant in your system. So these tests are very, very strong, um, and then they're able to find basically anything that you've been doing in, in the past. However, I, I can't remember how long that this test is good for, but it can catch a lot of stuff. Head kicks DC, wins back the championship. Everybody's thinking he's fine, he's coming back, he's doing this, and he failed his drug test. So, um, 
he failed this drug test after using Tyranobol. And this was uh, UFC 214, August 22nd, 2017. So he tested positive for Tyranobol, an anabolic steroid, and was placed on a provincial sus- provisional suspension as a result of the positive drug test on September 13th. The CSAC, California State Athletic Commission, announced that it had overturned the result of the fight with a, with Cormier from a KO victory uh, for Jones to a no contest. So he actually got that victory taken away after failing the drug test. And Jones stated that he did not knowingly take any prohibited substances with his team, believing Jones consumed tainted supplements. Jones potentially faced up to a four-year suspension if found guilty, but on September 18th, he was handed a 15-month suspension by USADA, which was retroactive, um, to July 28th, plus three months community service. So, uh, since the fight was in July, and then this decision wasn't made until a few months after, and it was retroactive, that means that the time that it took for them to reach the decision also counted in the suspension. So he got to come back way earlier than he should have because with the amount of Tyranobol, and I'm not an endocrinologist, I don't know everything about steroids, but I have looked up steroids for school projects before. I'm very consistently in the weightlifting and, and power powerlifting and the bodybuilding worlds, and, and I pay attention a lot to them. And everybody that I listen to a to this point and beyond, the uh, Tyranobol s- suspension, you don't accidentally take Tyranobol. Um, it's used a lot because it, it evaporates and it's out of your system a lot quicker than a lot of the other anabolics are. But it's not something that you just accidentally, you, you wake up one morning and go, oops, I accidentally took uh, Tyranobol. And this is actually not what I intended to do and it's not my fault. But USADA gave him the benefit of the doubt, and I think that was partially because the UFC knew that Jones is their number one, probably best fighter of all time. Nobody's ever come close. Nobody probably will ever come close to being as talented or, you know, as something something like that with Jones. Um, so he served his suspension, comes back, wins back the light heavyweight championship, beats DC for the third time. Nobody wants to see that fight again. Um, and then just recently he was actually arrested once again, and this time, Jones was arrested in the early morning of March 26, 2020 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. According to police reports, an Albuquerque PD officer heard what sounded to be a gunshot and upon further investigation, observed a black Jeep with Jones in the driver's seat. After noticing signs of intoxication, the responding officer administered field sobriety tests, which Jones failed. Jones was also given a breathalyzer test and registered a BAC, more than twice the legal limit. Police then searched Jones' vehicle while arresting him for DWI, found a partially empty bottle of Recruto Metzcal, as well as a black handgun underneath the driver's seat. Jones was arrested on the scene and taken to the Barnea... Barnaleo County Jail. Altogether, Jones was charged with aggravated DWI, negligent use of a firearm, possession of an open container, and driving with no proof of insurance. 
March 31st, it was announced that Jones had pled guilty to the DWI charge after accepting a plea deal in which the other charges would be dropped. He was sentenced to four days house arrest and one year of supervised probation, a minimum of 90 days of outpatient therapy, and must complete 48 hours of community service. So this is the reason why I decided to bring this up and, and wanted to discuss John Jones, mainly because... There's a, a big argument going around, and it has been going around for a while. Um, you hear the different sides of it, why it goes all the way back to Babe Ruth when he was asked why he why he's paid more than the president and if he thinks that's okay. And his response was, well, can the president hit however many home runs he, he hit in a season? No. So there's obviously a lot of exceptions given to a lot of athletes. Uh, and his I think Jones's original... The handling of his original, I'll just call them screw-ups because that's what they were. His personal screw-ups, his, his, his original mistakes were never reprimanded in the correct way to where he would have learned a lesson from any of them. And that's my biggest problem with, and I don't think that it's just the UFC. I don't think that it's just you know one league that's doing this it's a mixture of factors as to why athletes probably get a little bit more leeway when they break the rules than say just a regular person this though when somebody has proven to you time and time again i get one maybe you make one mistake everybody's made one mistake in their life i don't think that there's anybody who can say that they have been 110 percent perfect the entire time that they've been on this earth but when you have somebody who not only makes that first mistake that everybody else has probably made they go out and make a second mistake that's basically just a repeat of the first and then you end up making the third mistake and at that point you have somebody because when you do that in a child development sense, when you do that and you just let the same thing slide over and over and over again, it's a learned behavior now that Jones has. That It's a learned behavior that he has where he goes, okay, I'm going to go out this weekend, party, drink as much as I can, snort as much cocaine as I can, and then I'm going to get in trouble for it, have to sit out probably three or four months, and at that point, everything else is going to go away. I'm going to go back and fight in the octagon. Nobody can touch me. I'll win this title. Still show that I'm the greatest fighter that ever lived. And that'll be that. I don't know if he... Because he's been... People have tried to put him in therapy before. Everybody knows that he has a substance abuse issue. He's one of those guys where one drink turns into ten drinks. And then the next thing you know, he doesn't know how he got home. He doesn't remember where he was or what he did the night before. That is John Jones. And this has been a very public struggle with this kind of addiction issues. And this is where I start to kind of see. And I, I wanted to talk about this mainly because I think you can overlook one mistake. If all he had ever done after he came back and was reinstated after originally having the DUI, running the red light, hitting the pregnant woman, and coming back to the car. If that had been the only thing, yeah, I'm just an uptight a-hole who doesn't understand the pressures that this guy is under and the amount of um, willpower that he has to be able to overcome and still be the greatest fighter in the world after having all this happen to him. But then the second time... I started to be one of the first ones where I'm like, well, I don't know how much you really want 
to have this I don't know if this guy is the greatest of all time now just because you never you can't be such a jackass outside of your sport and just be the number one in your sport and that be everything that everybody talks about I do think that he's the most talented fighter I've ever watched he can overcome adapt he can beat people at their own games Daniel Cormier when he fought him Daniel Cormier was a U.S. Olympic wrestling team member he had I I think DC's only losses in college were to um Kale Sanderson who was the who's the only person in history to go undefeated four years in college wrestling that's the most frustrating part about the whole thing is that all he has to do is just continue to show up walk a straight line continue to show up fight and he's going to be known as the most successful of all time. He has a 28 and it, it counts as it's a 20 it's, he has a 26 and 1 record. The one loss that he has was for an illegal 12 to 6 elbow and was disqualified even though he was just beating the crap out of Matt Hamill. I love Matt Hamill, but there was no way he was going to end up winning that fight. And then he has the one no contest from the second fight against Daniel Cormier at UFC 214 where he had kicked him and and uh, knocked him out. So they took that off his record. But he's, barring those two, he is 25-0. and 0. Like, I don't think this is a bigger waste. I don't think there's been a bigger waste of talent just because this guy can't stop messing up and doing the things that gets him remembered for the wrong reasons and I feel like at this point he's probably thinking that people just continue to attack him if I was his coach back in New Mexico no matter how good you are and this is probably just me because I try and make sure if when I am a coach because I'm going to coach at some point whether it's it's my son's team or whether it ends up being at at a local high school whatever when I'm a coach I coach people not just to be the best person that they can be on the field. I coach them to be the best person they can be in the rest of their life. And at this point, you cannot tell me that John Jones has ever heard any kind of something like that. He is he heard, be the best on the field, and then you can go around and do whatever because everybody's going to give you an extra chance. And I think that is the biggest trage- tragedy and the biggest miscarriage of justice that happens, still happens in this world. And in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Look at the time that we're in right now. Sports was the very first thing that were just canceled. When there's a national crisis, there's been a couple exceptions, and I'm going to talk about it later on in the show um, when I do my my top my Mount Rushmore of rivalries. But sports in a political setting normally happens around the Olympics and. And that is kind of where sports means more than, than just a game. But 99.8% of the time, it's just a game. Whenever he fights, it's just a fight. Yes, he's putting a lot out there to risk, but is anybody going to John Jones during this coronavirus pandemic and asking him what he thinks should be done? No. Does anybody care that he's... he's I think he's getting kind of let off easy with this because... With everything else going on, and he wasn't even scheduled to fight, he just he just retained his title, 
he wasn't even scheduled to fight for a no, for a long time. His last fight was in February, so he was still in his off season. Nobody cares anymore. We're dealing with a lot bigger issues than some coked up cage fighter who can't control his alcohol and refuses to learn from his mistakes and continue to move in the right direction. So I think this takes John Jones off the list of the greatest of all time fighters. I don't think that he can be put back on it. He has a lot of redeeming to do once sports do come back and once we get out of this crazy time that we're in. He has a lot uh, of rebuilding his character I think that he should do before he's even considered to be in pound-for-pound rankings again or the greatest of all time rankings. Uh, probably the most naturally talented fighter, and I do think he could beat the crap out of everybody else on this planet two times over. But I don't think he should be given the recognition that he has been awarded by the UFC for just how good of a fighter he is when he's such a bad person outside. Well, I just mentioned it, so I guess we'll go into it a little bit more. With the coronavirus and everything happening, obviously there's not going to be a lot of current sports talk that is discussed on this show. There's no games or anything really to watch. It's going to be a lot of speculation and um, more. I have a segment called Mount Rushmore's, which I'm going to pick a different topic each show, and I'll make a Mount Rushmore out of those. Um, but for now, the the top stories are the John Jones thing because that happened recently in the past couple weeks. Um, this Wednesday, actually, the Summer Olympics, I think this is the first time in my lifetime that they've been completely moved um, just as a, a decision from the entire, like there's no dissension or anything in this decision to change the date and, and time of the Olympics. So now the 2020 Olympics will be taking place uh, Friday, it'll start Friday, July 23rd, 2021, and they'll end Sunday, August 8th. Um, so this is going to be an interesting blip in the records of the Olympics. Just because I don't think that there's ever been um, one Olympic Games where they were expected to take place on one day and then were completely moved. And this is out of the four-year cycle of the Summer Olympic Games. Uh, I'm interested to see how this affects. I mean, I, I'm looking at it through the people that I know that would be involved or um, benefit or have anything to do to pay attention to this decision. Um, a couple of the guys I wrestled with back in high school, the Fine Silvers, Matt and Josh, uh, were the Fine Silvers my age, Mitch and Zach. Uh, there were two sets of identical twin boys, and they were, they were all wrestlers. Uh, the older two, Mitch and Zach, were two years older than me, and then Matt and Josh were the Fine Silver twins that were my age group and were in my grade. Um, and Matt actually qualified for the U.S. Open. I believe it was either Freestyle or Greco-Roman, I can't remember, but he was actually taking an Olympic red shirt this year. He, he and his brother wrestle at Duke, and uh, Mitch and Zach actually just graduated from Duke last year as they were seniors. Um, but they wrestled for Duke, and Matt was taking an Olympic redshirt this year. I'm not sure what Josh was doing, but uh, now I'm not sure how, because you have to go through the NCAA to get that Olympic redshirt, and it really only matters in the sports that take place in the Olympic Games. So 
wrestling, he would still he wouldn't lose a year of eligibility for NCAA wrestling if the Olympics were going on now. I want to see how that is all going to be handled because this is such a unique situation and this has never happened before. Um, there have been the NCAA is giving back a year of a uh, season of eligibility to the I believe it's just the spring sport. And I'm not sure if they've extended it to the winter sports yet. But I know at least that spring sports will be saved their last year of eligibility. I, As a former NCAA athlete, I understand how much the timing of everything works out. Um, I was originally planning on being at Western for four and a half years, have my last season of football, and then be able to graduate right after that. Um, this is this is how well the world works around me, is that as soon as I made that deci- made the decision that I wasn't going to come back for that season and graduate in this semester, um, everything else seemed to hit the fan. So not str- I know that it's not me specifically. It's just kind of very strange how that all worked out to the point where I was ready at one point to graduate, and move on with the rest of my life, and then the rest of my life is kind of stuck in limbo with how we're dealing with the coronavirus and what all is going to go on with that. So I, I really hope that uh, this doesn't affect the eligibility of some of these NCAA athletes. Uh, the wrestling is kind of interesting, it, and those athletes that were taking an Olympic red shirt for this Tokyo Games, uh, originally being scheduled to be in 2020, uh, I'm not sure. I'm interested to see how they're going to figure that out moving forward after things can start coming back to normal. Uh, the curve is kind of straightened out and all that kind of stuff. But the Olympics have moved officially to Friday, July 23rd, 2021. Um, it was will be when the 2020 uh, Summer Olympic Games will begin. Just kind of speaking on the rest of the sports landscape now that this coronavirus has officially ended um it's postponed the start of baseball season kind of ended uh the winter sports season i'm looking at an article now um the nba lost 259 games this season plus 80 more playoff games nbc is estimating that that costs the league nearly 500 million dollars in revenue About half of their yearly revenue is made from their TV contracts, and uh, it failed to deliver about 340 of those games. The NCAA lost $1.1 billion by canceling March Madness. That costs about each school $375 million, and uh, it makes everything a little bit more expensive because the NCAA did decide to grant extra year of eligibility to the spring athletes uh, when their seasons were canceled. The interesting part about all of this, we uh, on one of the earlier episodes of Center of Attention that I kind of dubbed the last Gunnison Sports Talk Radio with Dom, we were talking about um, every all the different leagues' plans moving forward as to what they're going to do to get rid of or kind of get out of this coronavirus haze that has basically fallen over the entire world. Um, I believe basketball was going to come back if they're able to come back sometime soon and go right into the playoffs. So uh, the final standings would be where everybody else went in. I'm, I'm pulling those up now. 
so as it stands, as I believe it stands now, if the NBA, NBA, wow, the NBA is able to come back, the Eastern Conference would have Milwaukee and Orlando in the first round, Toronto and Brooklyn in the first round, Boston would be playing Philadelphia, and then Miami and Indiana would be the final home game of the first round. But the first seed would be Milwaukee, second seed would be Toronto, third seed would be Boston, Miami be four, Indiana five, Philly six, Brooklyn seven, and Orlando eight. So that would be the playoff picture for the Eastern Conference. And then the Western Conference playoffs, Los Angeles, the Lakers would take on Memphis, who at the final day of the season being played so far, uh, Memphis actually snuck up into the eighth seed. Los Angeles Clippers would be opening up the playoffs against Dallas, the Mavericks. Um, Denver would be playing Houston in the first round, which is actually probably one of their better matchups that they could have had in the playoffs. And then Utah and Oklahoma City would be the last two teams. Uh, Los Angeles Lakers 1, Clippers 2, Nuggets 3, Utah 4, Oklahoma City 5, Houston 6, Dallas 7, and Memphis 8. So that would be the NBA kind of plan of action moving forward. I believe NHL was going to do the same thing because they were very close. Uh, I believe the last game of the regular season would have been this past Tuesday, so they were really close to finishing their season up anyways. And they would go in. Playoffs for hockey are a little bit more difficult to discern just because they do a point system instead of just overall overall record. So you get two points if you win a game in regulation. You get you get one point and the other team I think you get you either get one point and the other team gets a point for an overtime win or you get two points, the other team gets one and then um, you don't get any points if you lose. So for each of the divisions right now in the Eastern Conference, Eastern Conference has two divisions, so does the Western Conference. Eastern Atlantic Conference Boston, and I believe Boston was the number one team in the entire league, too. And they are, because they have 100 points. Uh, let's just go to the conference outlooks and see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So, on the Eastern Conference side, Boston is the one seed. They'd be taking on Columbus, uh, who are the eighth seed with 81 points. Toronto would play Tampa. Tampa finished the season with 92. Toronto finished with 81 as well. Um, Tampa Bay is one of the one seeds. Last year, the NHL playoffs got off to a wild start because both the one seeds were swept in the first round. Uh, Colorado beat Calgary, who was the one seed in the West. And um, I can't remember who beat Tampa, but the eighth seed did beat Tampa Bay and then knocked them out of the playoffs as well. Eastern Conference three seed would be Washington. Four would be Philly. Five is Pittsburgh. Six is Carolina. Seven is Toronto. So for the long-standing drought that the Canadian teams have had after or since they've won their last Stanley Cup, Toronto would be their only hope, and it doesn't look very promising because they would be the seventh seed. And uh, home home ice isn't as important in hockey playoffs as it is in most of the other playoffs. But it does make some sort, somewhat of a difference um, for the Western Conference. St. Louis is one on the Western Conference with 94 points. The Avs are right behind them. I'm a big Colorado Avalanche fan. Uh, grew up in Denver, and uh, 
they came to Colorado, I think, the year before I was born. So I'm a huge Avalanche fan. That's where my bias comes from. Their second seed with 92. I think they were close to being able to close that gap. They were actually playing, supposed to play St. Louis on Tuesday in the last game of the regular season. That obviously didn't happen. Um, Vegas is the three on the Western Conference. They have 86 points. Edmonton is the four. Dallas 5, Winnipeg 6, Calgary 7, and then Nashville would be the last team in. Um, They are tied in points with Vancouver. It would be interesting, actually, to see how they would work that out because the only difference between Nashville and Vancouver right now is Vancouver has two less overtime losses um, than Nashville. They have one more regulation loss and one more regulation win. But I think that since most of Nashville's points came from not being beaten in regulation, be interesting to see how the NHL handles that and whether or not they put Vancouver or Nashville in as the eighth seed. I was getting very excited over spring break, um, probably still a little bit delusionally, but I love the NHL playoffs. I think they're the most exciting playoffs of any sport. And uh, I was I'm very disappointed. I'm, obviously, I'm disappointed as a whole. This is not the situation that I wanted the country to be in. Anyways, I know that the, nobody expected, or I'm not going to say nobody expected this. Nobody expected it to be as bad as it has been, and for everything to be canceled. Um, but I guess that's just the the way the world works. Sometimes is that thing that you least expect to happen is probably the most likely thing to happen. Um, hopefully everything gets taken care of. We're able to kind of bounce back from this. It'll, it'll take a little bit of time, but I do think everybody will be able to bounce back from this, um, at some point. And I'm hoping football is the first thing to kind of come back. But I also, at this point, the way that it looks, if everything's able to come back when this whole thing is kind of mitigated, I guess, it's not going to be taken care of. Uh, taken care of completely but for everything to be mitigated uh, we'd come back and have baseball they're probably doing a condensed season I think is what I've heard their commissioners say so we'd have baseball football both college and professional playoff basketball playoff hockey plus football just voted to have their 17th game at a 17th game of the regular season added so instead of it being four preseason games, they're only doing three preseason games. Um, and they are also adding the seventh team into each conference's playoffs. So only one team gets a bye now. It's go- what I'm saying is it's going to be very exciting and basically high-stakes sports every night, which for everything that's gone wrong in the past, I'll say, I don't know, in the past two months since we've been dealing with this, in the past 30 days or whatever that we've been stuck inside, quarantined, or not quite 30 days. But the be- I think that's the best outcome possible is for everything to be high stakes and kind of take everybody else's mind off of having to deal with such such a horrific virus and such a, a weird and strange time for the country as a whole. I'm going to continue doing this now when we were going over the end of the year and seeing what kind of 
uh, direction we wanted to go for Gunnison Sports Talk Radio moving towards the spring and graduation. We had decided that we wanted to uh, look at each specific division in the NFL and break down kind of what we saw happen over the last season and what we see from that division moving forward. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to get um, the rest of, of my team's opinion on this as well. Um, I think that would be make it a lot more fun, but I'll still be able to do it. Uh, I'll, I'll still get you guys some good information and uh, give you my predictions. I'm going to do breakdown of what I saw last season, what team I think is set up best moving forward. Um, and since the draft hasn't happened, maybe talk a little bit about draft ideas. I might actually just make that one whole sports ep- uh, podcast episode. Um, so we'll see about that. But for now, we uh, if you listen to Gunnison Sports Talk Radio, you probably heard us talk about the NFC West. We decided to start um, with the NFC West. And uh, I'm going to just break it down again quickly so that you guys can kind of get refreshed on what happened. And um, for the portion of my audience who didn't listen to Gunnison Sports Talk Radio, this will be completely new, so you can disregard everything that I said. Uh, but the NFC West in 2019 was represented in the Super Bowl. The 49ers lost to the Chiefs 31-20. Um, obviously one of the more entertaining Super Bowls to have happened, but now looking at the four teams in this division, San Francisco, Seattle, Los Angeles, and Arizona. Last season, I think the biggest surprise out of this division was Seattle. Moving into the regular season, um, our offensive line coach here at Western is actually from Washington, so he's a huge uh, Seattle fan. And even he was very surprised and told me point blank that um, the Seahawks played out of their mind, over their head, however you want to say it. They should not have been in the situation that they ended up being in, where I think it was the last game of the regular season. Uh, they were almost able to sweep San Francisco and punch themselves into the top two seeds um, of that division and, and stop San Francisco from getting home field throughout the playoffs. And that rivalry between the 49ers and the Seahawks was kind of rekindled almost with how close those last few games um, were between the two of them going towards the end of the season. Seattle actually surprised everybody at first by beating San Francisco. Um, I think that was when they were in Seattle. So they won their home game, lost the road game against the 49ers. But overall, I think Seattle is, uh, I guess, the one thing that I learned from last season is that you can never kind of count out experience and the old heads still do know what they're talking about. If my dad listens listens to this episode, I know that he's going to be smiling when he sees that. But um, I think it all all overall this division came down to um, talent and coaching. And Seattle, I think, is one of those teams now that you can never really count out. I mean, the last time that they weren't over five hundred and were still. Uh, not and weren't in contention for winning the division and, and playing very well. And one of the last time that you wanted to see the Seahawks on, pop up on your schedule was before Pete Carroll got there. And now since Pete Carroll has been there, he's been able to get the most out of Russell Wilson. And uh, I think in this draft, if they go after the right position group, it would be offensive line because um, 
Russell Wilson is putting up great stats and was an MVP candidate at one point during the season, and that is with five turnstiles in front of him. The Seattle offensive line is not good at all. Russell Wilson just has the pocket awareness to be able to either get the ball out before he needs to or he's able to move around, create his own space, and his receivers are good enough and know him well enough that they know the play is never dead. So I think Seattle, if they go after offensive line, could possibly overtake San Francisco as the number one team in this division. Speaking of the 49ers, um, they're not as hot as I thought they would be coming out of last season. I thought towards the end of the season, I thought they were going to possibly make a run for Brady. Um, just because that narrative fit. Brady grew up in Northern California, was a huge 49ers fan, was devastated uh, when he was drafted that he wasn't drafted to the 49ers because they had the chance to get him. They just decided not to. I thought that they were going to make a big run for Brady, give back Bel- give Belichick back Garoppolo. Uh, just because there was some weird tension between Garoppolo and Shanahan in the play- in the Super Bowl, you kind of got the feeling that Shanahan didn't quite trust uh, his quarterback, and that is something that is not good. And um, I talked about it a lot in those episodes post-Super Bowl, but I do think that San Francisco, once they got up in the fourth quarter, when they were leading 20-10, to 10, I think they were just playing not to lose. Uh, so that is, is partially why... I feel like um, they're not in as good of a place as I thought they would be. Garoppolo played out of his mind. Um, Kyle Shanahan is one of the best offensive minds in football to be able to get what he got out of his backfield, having, I think, two undrafted uh, undrafted rookies originally in Raheem Mostert and I um, can't think of, of the other one. I know Tevin Coleman was one of their running backs. And Matt Burita. So what he got out of Mostert, Burita, and Coleman. Mostert finished this season with 772 yards rushing. Burita finished with 623. And Coleman finished with 544. Which overall, between the three of them, gave them a 1,000-yard rusher. Plus they had Debo Samuel, who is good on the jet sweeps. And they wanted to get him a lot involved a lot in different ways in the offensive game and then I mean Coleman had 180 receiving yards Mostert had 180 receiving yards Burita before he got hurt had 120 so the 49ers strength as a whole comes down to just the fact that they have a very smart I would say probably the smartest head coach in football especially in the not in football. That's a little bit too bold of a statement even for me to make. I think they have the best. They're tied for the best coaching in this division. I, you, Like I said, you can never really count out Pete Carroll. Um, but I think Kyle Shanahan could be the savior or also the downfall of that franchise depending on what happens in um, the, the rest of the offseason post-draft and and stuff like that, seeing how much time everybody has to uh, get football in football shape, depending on how short OTAs and minicamp and all that stuff is. Well, when everybody comes back from the virus hiatus and, and stuff like that, San Francisco is the team for me that isn't set up personnel-wise 
to continue to be great. I think they still had to make some moves in the offseason, and I haven't seen them. Um, so that's my big problem. Also, Joe Staley, their stalwart on the offensive line. Uh, they had one of the better offensive lines, obviously. They had three un- unknown rook- unknown running backs at the beginning of the season rushed for 2,000 yards combined. Uh, but Staley's getting old. We're not sure how much longer he's going to play. Uh, the two scariest teams in this division are the two teams that finished. Uh, Los Angeles finished 9-7. and seven, Arizona was 5-10-1. and one. Uh, I'll start with the team that I was surprised the most by, and that was the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, they surprised, started off surprising me all the way back to last year when they took Kyler Murray number one overall. I wasn't expecting that. They had just taken Rosen. I thought Kingsbury wanted to come in with a young quarterback, who, which I thought was Rosen. That's who I thought would kind of take them and be their guy. They decided to go in a different way, pick up Kyler Murray, and Murray surprised me um, I'll just say that. Murray surprised me. Ended the season with 3,700 passing yards, 20 touchdowns. Uh, I probably had a lot more um, interceptions than you probably want to see him going to their stats now. So he had a 64.4% completion percentage and a 20 to 12 interception to touchdown ratio, which isn't terrible. Yeah, 87.4 rating when he was. First announced that he was coming out for football and, and not going to play baseball. I was one of the very outspoken members of the radio community, sports radio community, that said he. I think he was making the biggest mistake that he could have. He had guaranteed money waiting for him in the major league, major leagues for baseball. I didn't think that he was big enough to hold up. I didn't think that he'd be able to just durability-wise go through the entire season. And uh, he proved that he's more durable than David Johnson. And now with the fact that they were able to get rid of David Johnson, who, yes, in the first couple of years that he was in the league, David Johnson was considered one of the top up-and-coming running backs. The past couple seasons, it hasn't happened. Missed a few seasons due to injury and everything like that, but they got rid of him. They have Kenyon Drake, who was a 600-yard rusher, scored eight touchdowns last year. They still have Larry Fitzgerald, who's always going to be a leader in that locker room. And now they bring in DeAndre Hopkins, which is another good um, weapon for Kyler Murray to have. And the more weapons you can get a young quarterback, especially one that's as dynamic as Murray, uh, the better. They have, right now, Larry Fitzgerald is their leading receiver from last season. He had 804 yards, four touchdowns. Christian Kirk, who is a very explosive, good young player, had 709 receiving yards and three touchdowns. And now... When you add in their biggest steal of the entire offseason so far in DeAndre Hopkins that they got from a trade with Houston, Hopkins had 1,165 receiving yards and seven touchdowns. And uh, I'm not going to... I don't know about what you all think. I think if you're going to compare Kyler Murray to any quarterback right now in the league, it's very safe to compare him to um, Deshaun Watson, who is the person who threw all those touchdowns and had all those yards with DeAndre Hopkins last year. they got to sure up their offensive line a little bit. Their defense, I feel like, could use a little bit more 
stability, get a couple guys that can kind of hold hold on to those those positions. But honestly, if you look at last season, it was probably as good of an outcome as they could have expected. Uh, they lost 31-24 week one to the Rams, ended up beating the Seahawks next week 27-13, beat the Browns 38-24, and everybody was thinking that was still when everybody was thinking the Browns were going to come back and be America's team. Lost to the Steelers by six, uh, then got kind of beat up by the Rams, lost to the 49ers by 10, lost to the Buccaneers by three, and the Buccaneers are another team that when uh, we get to the NFC South will be an interesting team to break down. Lost to the 49ers by three in their second matchup. Lost to the Saints 31-9. But then for the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven games of the season, they won three, lost three, and tied. And they beat the Giants 27-21, beat the Falcons 34-33, beat the Bengals 26-23, and then they lost to the Seahawks, Panthers, Ravens, and then tied the Lions. But I think that overall, if you're an Arizona Cardinals fan, and I know if Garrett's listening, I know he's smiling because I'm having to eat my words about how I thought the the Cardinals would be. Arizona's one of those sneaky teams. Um, I think Arizona could possibly be switching roles with Seattle as to they're the team that nobody really expected, but then they overplay where everybody overplay everybody's expectations and wind up with a wild card and. Um, they'd be a, a fairly dangerous wild card team at this point, I think. Um, and then Los Angeles, the Rams, they kind of had the bubble burst on them last year after coming off a Super Bowl season where they did lose to um, lost to the Patriots. I think that you can kind of count that as Bill Belichick beat Sean McVay. I don't think Sean McVay was ready to coach in that big of a game against a guy with as much experience as Bill Belichick. They also were missing their one of their better receivers and their number one slot receiver in Cooper Cup. He was out with an injury. Um, but then last year, Gurley kind of underperformed, and uh, Goff, even though he threw for over 4,500 yards, 16 interceptions, not great. Their offensive line has really been what's struggling over the past couple years um, since their Super Bowl. They let Roger Saffold go. He goes to Tennessee and is starting to tear it up now in Tennessee, really showing why he he's one of those offensive linemen that they probably should have kept around. The Rams are in an interesting place because I think they need – they just got rid of Gurley. Gurley's no longer on the Rams. Um, I think he's, he's over to the Falcons. So they cut Gurley, and Gurley went to the Falcons. Now they kind of have to figure out if they want to continue to move forward with Jared Goff or depending on if I was going to say any one team would tank because I don't think tanking happens a lot in the NFL. But if there's one team where I think tanking, depending on how the first five weeks of the season go, I can see the Rams being that team. Uh, We don't have the schedule for next season, but At this point, Jared Goff is going into the last year of his contract. I think it's a year before they have to decide whether or not they want to pick up his fifth-year option. They have Sean McVay, who started off as kind of like a whiz kid, got him to the playoffs his first two years, and then missed them last year. They start off 1-4 or 2-3, and and the rest of their division, like San Francisco, 
excuse me, comes out and is, is playing well like people expect, Seattle's playing well like people expect, and Arizona starts picking up their game a little bit more, I could definitely see the Rams kind of tanking and uh, letting Goff go at the end of next season if that is the case and draft, be, be in a position to draft Trevor Lawrence. Because I still think Trevor Lawrence is the number one quarterback prospect to come out of college football since probably Peyton Manning. And uh, if anybody, if, if you want a young quarterback to get involved with one young coach in the league, how many guys are you putting before uh, Sean McVay on that list? I'm not putting many before Sean McVay on that list at all. I could even see if they go 3-3, three and three, quit pushing for the playoffs and just push for the number one draft pick because I think that they have they have the ability to pull free agents being in Los Angeles. They're having that new stadium open up this year. Their logo does suck, and I don't know what they were trying to accomplish in changing the logo the way that they did. But at this point, the Rams are a 9-7 and team last year. Lost probably one of their best offensive weapons in Todd Gurley, who's been kind of the face of their franchise ever since they drafted him. And now they got to figure out what they want to do with Goff. And McVay has to prove that he's not just a, a one-trick pony and see where he can get them. But it's a of the four teams in the NFC West, I have the least amount of hopes for Los Angeles. Going back to my notes for this episode, I think um, I, I was told everybody that I was been very windy in Gunnison. I don't know if that came through um, through the microphone, but it's been very windy the last few days. My blinds are going crazy um, in the dorm. So the prediction that I am making for the NFC West in the 2020-2021 NFL season, I think your division champion is going to be Seattle. I think they add a couple wins to their record. They go 13-3. and and win that division. Um, Seattle, or not Seattle, San Francisco and Arizona are kind of a toss-up for me in where they're going to finish in that division. I, I could see very easily both of them either getting the second or the third spot pretty easily. I think one of those two are going to go 9-7. and seven. I'll put Arizona at three at nine and seven. I think San Francisco is going to drop off a little bit. They'll either go, um, they're going to go somewhere between ten and six to twelve and four, and either just lose the division title or be very close. And then I think Los Angeles is going to be the fourth team in the NFC West. I think they're going to come back down to earth a little bit, and they're going to have to figure out what they want to do moving forward. But that's those are my predictions for the NFC West. In the upcoming NFL season, each week I'll pick a different um, division. I'll probably just go through um, the NFC and then move my way over to the AFC um, for now. But now we're coming up on the final segment of this show, and I decided I wanted to end the Sports Center of Attention episodes with a Mount Rushmore of different topics. And the first one that I picked, because um, this week I've been... I watched a uh, NHL Network documentary about the top rivalries just in hockey, and that kind of got me thinking about what is what's one of the main things that people watch sports for. You watch sports to see your team win, or you watch sports to see the team that you hate lose. 
And I think that's what makes competitive sports as great as they are, as to the rivalries that, that they can create. So, and this is not in order, I have made what I have made a Mount Rushmore of my top four uh, rivalries that are these are just personal. I'm going to try and explain to you why I think they're the top rivalries, and then I have four honorable, honorable mentions as well. I'll start with the honorable mentions. The U.S. versus USSR hockey games. Um, this is a little bit more of a one-sided rivalry than all the others on my list. Um, I think that that was just the geopolitical implications of that one, of that game, that contest back in the 1980 Winter Olympics when Russia not only beat the national team in the Olympics before and the World Championships before, they also, that year, going into the 1980 Winter Games, they had beaten the NHL All-Stars, so the best players in the biggest um, hockey league in, in the country got pounded by this USSR national team who were basically professionals but uh, the Soviets counted them not as athletes so US versus USSR is my first honorable mention my second honorable mention is Mike Tyson versus Evander Holyfield and this is not on my Mount Rushmore mainly because of the outcome of the two fights they weren't as competitive as I think a lot of people were originally expecting them and that goes down to a couple factors, and we've seen them in recent, especially boxing rivalries as well. Um, a lot of people thought that Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather was a big boxing rivalry, and I would say that it probably would have been if they would have fought a little bit more closer to their prime, but they were both over the hill. And I think you can say that for Mike Tyson, um, especially in the second fight against Holyfield when he had the whole ear biting thing he wasn't in the right frame of mind I would have loved to see a Mike Tyson who was being trained by Custom Auto who was the original trainer that turned Tyson into the killer that he ended up being uh, I would have much rather seen like a 19 year old Tyson go up against the Evander Holyfield that we ended up seeing him fight because Holyfield I do believe is one of the better um, he's one of the better boxers of all time and I think that it would have been just a more, a little bit more competitive of a matchup if they would have fought earlier than what they did. Um, my third, and this is just the, the last two on my honorable mentions are just for the magnitude and the fact that these have spanned multiple generations: um, Lakers, Celtics, and Yankees, Red Sox. Lakers and Celtics, obviously one of the biggest basketball rivalries in history, just because. Um, they had two of the more iconic players of a generation in Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and they they were basically the top two basketball teams ever. I, I think they have more championships. The two of them have more championships than everybody else in the league combined. Same thing with the Red Sox, the Red Sox-Yankees. The Yankees have 27 World Series. Um, the Red Sox yeah, are, very, are a very successful franchise as well. Um, the one that makes, I think, the Yankees-Red Sox is a little bit higher than the Lakers-Celtics mainly because I'm not a huge basketball fan. I've gotten more into basketball as my broadcasting career has kind of progressed and I've watched a lot more basketball. But I still, just the fact that I'm a huge Yankees fan with the Bronx and the Italian ties, and I was a big Babe Ruth, uh, Babe Ruth when we were learning about him in elementary school, turned quickly into one of my favorite athletes of all time. So those are my honorable, honorable mentions of best rivalries. And now... 
and my actual Mount Rushmore. I'm gonna start. This isn't in order of. I think that objectively, this isn't in order of the best ones. You can probably find rivalries that have had more that are closer. Uh, mean more to some people but this is probably my biggest rivalry personally just because um, though I am from Denver I'm not a huge Colorado professional teams fan the only one that I'm really a huge fan of are the Avalanche and their biggest rival and one of the more successful rivalries of the later 90s and early 2000s is the Red Wings and Avalanche and this started in Game 6 of the 96 Western Conference Finals, Avalanche right winger Claude Lemieux checked Red Wings center Chris Draper from behind, driving Draper's face into the boards. That was the hit that basically started uh, like a 7- or 8-year war between the two. Uh, I know that it's different now because the Avalanche and Red Wings are in a much different place in the league, and they're not even in the same conference anymore. This was back when, before realignment, and the Red Wings and Avalanche were actually in the same conference. Um, but, and, and this was one of the rivalries that was in the documentary that I was watching. They they talked about it um, as to where basically whoever won between these two rivals were going to win the Stanley Cup that year. I know Detroit won a ton between... Um, 97 and 2000, I think five ish is when they won their last one. And the avalanche obviously won in 96 when they first became the Colorado avalanche after they were the Quebec, uh, I think the Quebec Nordiques or something like that. They were originally from Quebec and, and then moved to Colorado and then the Avs won also in 2001. But, uh, the highlight of this rivalry was the, uh, the Avalanche Red Wings Brawl. And I, I think they had a nickname for their bigger fights. Um, March 26th, 1997. Um... Uh, no, yeah, it was that that day. Uh, there was already a fight before, and then a major melee ensued at the 1822 mark, leading into the third fight. Shortly after a collision between Red Wing center Igor Larionov and Avalanche forward Peter Forsberg, Wings enforcer Darren McCarty seized the chance to avenge his grind line teammate by escaping from the grasp of Adam Foote and linesman and turning to cold clock. Coldcock Lemieux. And that was probably the bloodiest fight I've I can remember watching in a hockey game. And uh it's one of the only fights I can remember where both goalies, Patrick Waugh, who was known around Denver for being absolutely crazy, and then also for the fact that he was one of the goalies that was known for fighting, fought uh, Mike Vernon, which is actually considered the greatest goalie fight in all of the NHL. So that's my number one on my Mount Rushmore is the Avalanche versus the Red Wings. Number two is a football rivalry, and it's in the same division that my favorite team is in, in the NFC North. I'm a big Bengals fan. 
you can save your your jokes and and all that kind of stuff for after or on social media tweet at me jim at jimmy Pilato, or tweet at the center of attention twitter page at coa pod 73 and tell me how dumb i am for being a Bengals fan but uh the Ravens and Steelers are actually my favorite rivalry in the NFC North, which is interesting because it's a fairly new rivalry since the Ravens are one of the expansion franchises. Um, their first meeting was in 1996, and they've been division rivals since then. So, what is that, 28? They, they've had 52 total meetings between regular season and then playoffs. And the Steelers are actually leading the rivalry series 28-24. But th- these are one of just those old-school rivalries where you, like uh, like the Steelers and Cowboys would have been back in the 70s, where both of these teams knew that once they got the pads on and once everything, all the pleasantries of pregame and stuff were out of the way, these two teams were just there to beat the crap out of each other. That's exactly what they did for a long, long time, as long as I can remember, and they still do. And then you have uh, James Harrison adding the fuel to the fire a little bit where he won't even wear purple um, and doesn't allow purple in any of the Steelers facilities. Um, and then the, the couple years where the Ravens actually beat the Steelers in the playoffs and then went on to play the uh, – um, Patriots in the conference championship game, but both of these teams, uh, I believe both of them have only won two Super Bowls since they first, yeah, since they first met. Both teams have only won two Super Bowls. Baltimore won in 2000 and 2012, and Pittsburgh won in 2005 and 2008. Uh, but they are basically the owners of the NFC, AFC North, excuse me, between them, the Bengals, the Browns, and the Steel. The, Steelers, Ravens, Browns, and Steel, Browns and Bengals. Wow, I just omitted my favorite team from that list. But uh, Baltimore's won two conference championships. Pittsburgh's won three. They won. Uh, Pittsburgh won the conference in 2010, and then lost to the Packers in the Super Bowl. Um, and then between the two of them, they have 17 divisional championships. So these two teams. Since 1996, when the Ravens were reintroduced as a franchise, have they've been one of the best and most fun and entertaining rivalries to watch uh, in the NFL. And the next two rivalries on my Mount Rushmore, I'm not. I'm going to give it away now. They're both college football rivalries, um, and this is why I preface this segment by saying these are just my personal opinion. Uh, basically, these are my favorite sports that I'm picking the best rivalries out of, and. If I was more of a soccer fan, I'm sure the Barcelona and, and whatever whoever their rival rival is would have been more important to me. But two games that the last two are, are two games that I basically sit down each year, and no matter how either of the teams are doing, uh, it's still interesting to watch. And that would be the first one that I'm going to put there is the Army Navy game, and it's. Uh, been played 120 times. Navy leads the series 61, 52, and 7. Um, but this is, it's one of those rivalries, and they have a great pregame, like video package before the game always starts. And uh, one of the quotes that kind of, um, I'd say, defines this rivalry for me is everybody that's on the field playing 
is willing to die for everybody who's in the stands and, and at home watching. And that's kind of my – the reason why this is my favorite college football rivalry, even though it's I'm not – I don't have family that graduated from Army. I have a cousin that goes to Navy. Um, but I honestly just really enjoy seeing a game. I, I cheered for Navy because of that, and I've had family that have been in the Navy in the past. Um, but the first meeting of this rivalry was in 1890, and they've played, I think, every year minus the years that the country was at war. Um, Navy just won the last game, but Army had been on a three-game win streak before then. Navy holds the streak for the longest consecutive wins at 14 from 2002 to 2015. Navy had won every meeting, and that was actually a lot of fun to watch because uh, if you remember, I believe it was two years, not last year, the year before, but two years ago um, when Army and Navy played. It was in the snowstorm in, I can't remember where they play it, when Navy hosts. Um, I believe it was in Philadelphia when they played, and Navy was the host team. And it was a, basically a whiteout blizzard, and Army was in all white uniforms. Navy was in their bright blue and yellow uniforms. And that was just one of the those games, and I think it came down to a blocked field goal or a mixed, missed extra point or something like that, and Navy ended up uh, giving away the streak at that point, which was 14 games. So Army-Navy is my third favorite rivalry of all time. And then rounding out my Mount Rushmore is the Iron Bowl between Auburn and Alabama. Been 84 meetings. Alabama leads the series pretty heavily, 46-37-0, to zero, or 46-37-1. and one. Alabama's out in front. But Auburn just won this past year, and I think Auburn set up in a, in a good way to continue to win this rivalry. Um, ESPN recently put out a documentary on this game, actually, and I think that's partially why this one's so fresh in my mind. And they had the the one crazy guy poisoned the trees in Tumors Hill, or the like the place where Tumors Corner where when Auburn wins a huge game, they go out and TP all those trees, and that's kind of been their tradition. There was a crazy Alabama fan. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he actually went to Tumors Square and poisoned those trees, and those trees are actually like 20, 20 or 25 years closer to dying after what he did. So his rivalry carries a lot of weight, and it's Alabama's one of those states where football is basically all they have, and you're either a Crimson Tide fan or a Tiger fan. Um, I'm kind of I've kind of been on both sides. I wanted Auburn to win this past year because I didn't want Alabama to sneak their way into the college football playoff. But I've tr- visited Alabama and their facilities and um, kind of seen them a little bit. So I'm personally I'm a little bit more connected with Alabama. I know my sister Roxy says that she's an Alabama fan, and I don't know how she became an Alabama fan. But if that's what she says, then I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not going to uh, falter for it. I just didn't realize that that was gonna be her, uh, her favorite team. But I think that's gonna bring us to the end of this first sports-centered center of attention. And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed listening. This is gonna be a regular thing every Monday. I will be releasing the sports-centered episode. And then Thursdays, we'll still have the regular Center of Attention podcast episodes. Be sure to 
there, like I said, um, when you listen to the last episode, I'm not able to do the video portion just yet. I don't have the equipment. Um, I'll figure that out at some point. Hopefully, we launch the YouTube channel and the video portions. Hopefully by August. But if not, I'll keep you guys updated on that. Follow the Center of Attention Twitter page at COAPod73. It's where I put out the direct links for these shows if you listen on Anchor. Um, and, and that's where I put behind-the-scenes stuff. That's where all the polls are released for there. Um, Mount Rushmore's. I might release a poll um, or just put my Mount Rushmore out there as to the top four that I, I put out there for today's episode. I'll put that on the Twitter page tomorrow. Uh, follow my personal Twitter at Jimmy Pilato. That'll be in the show notes. Uh, my Instagram at proud underscore WAP. And then my Facebook is just Jimmy Pilato. You can follow me on TikTok as well. That's just at Jimmy Pilato. Um, but then the big thing that I'm going to ask you guys for, and I don't know if a lot of you do this or not already. And if you do, you can just tune this out. But if you listen on Apple Podcasts, um, I'll pull up the list of platforms now that you can watch, that you can listen. When you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or Radio Public, please like and subscribe to the podcast page. Um, and then leave a rating and a review on iTunes because that is how iTunes knows how to distribute the podcast and put it on the different kinds of charts. If we get a lot of ratings and reviews, we'll move up the charts a little bit, be able to grow the fan base a little bit more. If you listen on Spotify, just follow the show and um, tell a friend about it if you can. Because the more people that know about the show, then the more people that can tune into the show, the bigger the show can get, and then the cooler stuff, cooler content I can produce for you guys. But thank you for listening to this first sports-centered episode of center of attention and i'll be back thursday with another regular episode but for now um, everybody stay safe be happy hug your loved ones and we'll see you guys on thursday And we're out.